Form is basically an iconic identity that a building or environment takes on. And then the environment itself is what takes that identity through its organizational solution. So when you create some type of organization of spaces, rooms, or relations with inside of an environment, you create that environment, and that environment then ends up with a form that becomes an identity. It is the research process, which we call our design research process, entitled Form Environment Research, that basically helps us establish those relations within an environment to create that form. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ventura, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. In Inglewood, California, Christopher Mercier, president and design principal of FER Studio, builds award-winning contemporary iconic architecture designed by a process whereby the final form is a result of a unique and collaborative design research method entitled Form Environment Research, or FER for short. FER's approach is to produce a unique, iconic form that offers each client a strong, personalized visual identity arising from exceptional care for their aims. Christopher Mercier is a specialist in the human-environment relationship and uses the environment as a tool to help do a lot with the little in today's interview, we'll speak with him to discuss the opportunity for building these environments to do the heavy lifting for us. After the interview, we'll hear a segment from one of our webinars about building these kinds of environments to help us influence others to meet our ambitious aims. Here's our interview. I'm Christopher Mercier, founder and president of FER Studio. We're an iconic architecture and urban design office in Inglewood, California. John, I appreciate being here. This looks like it's going to be a fun. <laughs> yeah, I think it will be. Say a little bit about you, you first started participating at Influence Ecology in what year? Geez, I think it was at least two years ago now, two and a half, maybe something in there. And I started with Fundamentals of Transaction. And originally I worked with Lorenda Phillips and she was a coach for many years. And I did her structures for success course that she did years ago. And Lorenda was the person who got me over finally to meet with you when you were doing a presentation in Pasadena, one of the workshops. Hmm. I went to that with doubts, <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> By the time I walked out of there, I was like, wow, this is really, really good. This is great. This has everything I've kind of been looking for. So I, I was really impressed. 
And tell me a little bit about that. What was it that you were looking for, if you remember? What was it that had you say to yourself, well, that sounds like something I should do? You know what? It was just in the presentation and going through the conditions of life and the personality types and everything. You know, over the years, I've been read philosophy, this and that, and I've done this and that program. I did some Tony Robbins stuff. And all of these things I were doing were like pieces of information that could be applied here and there. But I never felt like there was a comprehensive approach to something. And I, I feel like that's where Influence Ecology for me really comes together as it's not just a business tool. It's not just a life tool. It's not just this tool or that tool. It's kind of like the whole toolbox all together. And that for me was kind of groundbreaking. I don't disagree. In fact, we have a lot of people that say something like, well, I've heard this and I've tried that and I've studied this and I've applied that. But it seems as if you guys at Influence Ecology bring it all together in kind of a cohesive program. Anything else you want to say about that? That's been like a key piece because I guess I think I've always struggled with you do this stuff for your business and then your life's over here and it's this separate thing. And now with working with Influence College and where I am now, it's the first time where I've got to kind of combining everything and it all looks cohesive under one idea. There's separate parts to these things, but it's all a full, continuous, collected idea, which I think is fabulous. One of the things that you pointed out in your notes was you began to discover that of the many conditions of life, and by the way, for those that are listening for the very first time, a condition of life is, I'll say, an unavoidable area of your life that all human beings must attend to. For example, money, work, career, relationship, and many others. So, Chris, in your notes, you talk a little bit about that the conditions of life, as we presented them, you began to see some things about thinking accurately about those different conditions of life, and then how to take care of many of those conditions of life, perhaps in new ways. So anything you want to say to reflect on that part of your journey? Yeah, I'd say that I was grew up in Michigan in a typical Midwestern middle-income family household. And my parents always taught the idea kind of hard work and you're going to get where you need to go. And that was really the motto of everything. But having gone through the influence college that we've done so far and what I've been doing is realizing that, yeah, hard work is great. But unless you've got plans and accurate thinking and you're really setting yourself up to understand how you're going to address these things, it's really not going to happen. And so that's what I really have been working on over the last couple of years since I've started is really strategizing different plans for these different conditions of life and creating deadlines and goals and aims within each of them. And prior to that time, were you just crossing your fingers or you were just working hard and, and thinking, well, if I just keep working hard, it'll turn out? Probably a little bit of both. <laughs> a lot of the second one. <laughs> but Well, I think it's the same for all of us, right? <laughs> I'm just, I got my head down. I'm working. This should turn out, right? It'd be funny because partial plans would come along and you'd kind of have a plan for one direction for a while. And then at some point that plan would kind of like dilute it. And then off to another thing. So there was no kind of consistency with it either. So I think one thing is useful to point out the design of our programs and everything else is kind of an environment. Our programs are an environment. One of the ways to relate to the name of our company, Influence Ecology, 
is this way. And I've told this story a dozen times, but that if I want to compete in the Olympics, then I have to go put myself in the right environment to develop myself. I have to put myself amongst other Olympic athletes. I have to put myself inside of the kinds of frameworks and commitments and obligations. I have to eat like them, sleep like them. You know, I have to be around people who are going to say, no, 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 try that one more time and all of that. So there's an environment that's built for people to be able to produce those rather uncommon results. So influence ecology is an ecology that influences you and I to meet our goals. Or said another way, we produce an influence ecology that allows the environment to do the heavy lifting. In other words, we use the environment to help us a little bit. And I'm excited about that part of what we do in talking with you, Christopher, because as an architect, and not just any old architect, I'm going to ask you to brag a little bit about some of your accomplishments, but environment's your middle name. And so I look forward to finding out a little bit more about that and its importance as far as what you do and what you offer. Anything you want to say about environment generally before I get onto that? Yeah, I think environment is what we are all in all the time in terms of the ecology and stuff. To me, it's really the basis of how we as architects understand and structure the world. And environment is really all about relations. And I think that's a huge, huge point. And that's something that we've built on with my firm, Form Environment Relation, Form Environment Research. And the funny thing is that, John, I've never said this, but when I was developing the name years ago, I was back and forth between Form Environment Research, what it is called today, and Form Environment Relation. It's a funny thing that I've ended up on the one because I think both of them play into what we really do today. I'd say more about that for people to understand form environment relation or form environment research. What does that mean? What we've been working with is the, the words form environment research, which become FER in our name, basically. Form is basically an iconic identity that a building or environment takes on. And then the environment itself is what takes that identity through its organizational solution. So when you create some type of organization of spaces, rooms, or relations with inside of environment, you create that environment and that environment then ends up with a form that becomes an identity. It is the research process, which we call our design research process entitled form environment research that basically helps us establish those relations within an environment to create that form. What do you mean by iconic architectural design or iconic architectural urban design in reference to FER? I guess the first thing I'd say is I actually think all architecture is iconic. And it's just a really, it's a question of what level or what degree of iconicness it really takes on. Some buildings are bland, and I would say there's almost zero iconicness whereas or iconicity. But as you increase something like the Eiffel Tower, there's a huge amount. So all buildings have a level of iconic identity. I think that's the nature of architecture. In my definition of what iconic is, it's really what makes the form identifiable, memorable as an entity. In our process, in form of environment research, why iconic form is important is it because each customer has their 
own identity, or at least should have their own identity. And that identity should be derived from and created out of the relations of their environment. One of the ways we work with clients is we basically, we start off and we develop different relational diagrams. And what you're trying to do is look for ways that you first solve any breakdowns or any difficulties they're having with any efficiencies. And this can go from a creative office space. This can be a museum. This can be down to a residence. But it's these relations that you're looking for that you're trying to establish a new organization of those relations to create its own iconic form. And that form should become the identity of that specific customer. And I'm thinking about, as an example, I'm thinking about when I grew up, when I grew up back in Texas, when I went to school, we learned very early on about certain kinds of architecture. For example, I remember bank architecture. So the banking industry in the old days, if you will, or in the early 1900s, at least in the United States, need to represent something rather permanent and sturdy and authoritative. And so the architecture was heavy and it was stone and it was columns and it was, there were pillars. And so there was something meant to be demonstrated in that environment, in that architecture. And nowadays, as I'm looking at banks and watching bank architecture, it's so funny, I pay attention to this stuff still to this day. I watch bank architecture become a little bit more hip, not so, you could say not so old white guy sitting in a, you know, but more hip, more of the times. So there's a different kind of iconography that's being represented in that architecture. So are those examples of what you mean or anything you want to expand on? The bank example is fabulous. And I can't remember, I'm blanking. I think it might be Citibank. They have the new bank cafe. Or So when I look at that, the way that I read that situation is that what happened is that they've reorganized the environmental relations of how the bank works, which has allowed them to restructure an identity that you now recognize as the new cafe slash bank. So in other words, the way you'll use that interior of that space, the way that those conditions of environment, relational things are going to happen inside the bank is different than what happened in the bank you're explaining from the past, which was a much more formalized and rigid structure with youth. And I think this is where a lot of architecture goes astray. You can't just apply an identity to a form, to a relationships. You have to use those relationships to find the identity that comes out of that. And I think there's, you see a lot of buildings that look like one thing and you walk in the door and then it's something else. And there's this unrelatedness that I, I struggle with. If it's not intentional and if it's not for a very good reason. So I think you and I, Christopher, have the opportunity to bring to light some things that you do naturally, you know, in your architecture and in what you're focused on, which is through the relationships between the individuals in an environment, the environment's utility, all, all of the different functions, and there's probably a lot I'm not even bringing to this example, but you make real in architecture those relationships into some iconic representation of those commitments 
so that when the architecture was present, that the architecture itself then does what to us critters that see it or inhabit it? We, what we started to do over the last couple of years, thanks to Influence Ecology, is we're starting to look at the relations within an environment as actually transactions. And we're starting to look at the individuals, the groups, people within those environments that create different departments, say, as also how they transact. And the idea comes kind of another level. What we look for is we look for a client comes to us and they say, look, we're having this breakdown. This isn't organized right. This is not flowing correct. And so one thing is to find that solution. That's one level. The next level that's more interesting to me, and I think it's more important to what architecture can do, is that you say, okay, so here's the solution, but what are the unrecognized opportunities that we aren't catching? And so that's where we look for, and we bring in a word that we call cross-pollination. A simple way to explain how cross-pollination would work is that we were playing with this larger urban design project and it had in it, there was an elderly housing situation that was part of the project. And that was on one side of the project from the developer. And on the other side of the project, there was going to be a preschool, a daytime preschool. And so what we decided to do was to take that preschool and take the elderly housing and actually merge those two programs. Because there are two programs that have in one way, nothing to do with each other. But in another sense, what the elderly individuals can gain from spending time or interacting or creating or transacting with the children of the day center and vice versa creates a whole new cross-pollination opportunity. And so what that does is then it says, well, then what does that environmental situation look like? Where do they interact? How do they interact? And then when you work that out, then it'll be able, what is the form of this? And so that's where form environment research really comes around. And that's kind of what we really after is we're trying to not only solve the problem, but we're trying to find the opportunities that people aren't even aware of so that in the end, what we're doing is we're creating an architecture that helps really increase an individual's or an organization's performance in the world. You know, I'm working with a variety of different companies around the world. And one of the things that I'm helping them do is to use the power of environment. So to make a long story as short as possible, sometimes within organizations, many people are attempting to produce buy-in. That's typically the catchphrase used for a whole bunch of influence and compliance that the people seek within enterprises. In other words, I'd like for my new initiative at the company I'd like to get buy-in on this and have that thing go throughout the enterprise. I want that thing sort of ingrained into the enterprise. I want these new practices. I want these new habits. I want these new narratives. I want these new, these new ideas. I want these new standards to be accepted and complied with throughout the enterprise. So that's what we might refer to as compliance. And I will talk to them about building an environment that does the heavy lifting for them. And it's often the case that someone will be really gifted in a particular aspect of this, like a performer personality, which is the relationship-oriented personality, will be quite gifted at building influence and compliance, producing buy-in, as a relationship person, going out and 
getting everybody on the same page and having lots of conversations, but it's much more relational and conversational. Whereas the judge personality, the person that's much more about evidence and standards, will construct sort of the boundaries and edges, the guidelines, the standards, the policies and procedures to produce influence and compliance, right? So what we're doing, Christopher, is we're working with people to understand that there are a lot of different pieces to the architecture of building an influence ecology. There's the ideas, there's the relationships, there's the processes, there's the standards, and you can hear all four personalities in that. So there's something to building an influence ecology where we take those things and use them to produce influence and buy-in within an organization or an enterprise. Now, from what I can hear and what you're doing is, is you're, you're doing something quite similar. You're producing architecture that does some of the heavy lifting for your clients. <laughs> it tends to speed the transactions in some ways. And I'd love to hear your, your comments about that. If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. Wow, that's exactly what we're trying to do too. <laughs> is really create an environment that really supports and enhances what people are already doing and really can take them to the next level. To me, it's such an obvious thing that it needs to happen. And it's such an obvious place of what architecture should be doing. I'm great to hear that. That's just really cool. Well, it's, it's great to hear from you too. I mean, I think that's the fun of having two guys. Again, it's been a while since I studied architecture, but what I loved about it was the relational study of it. What drew me to it originally was growing up as a kid and loving to go outside and build stuff in my garage. But as I studied it, I started to understand how relational it was. In other words, that some people would, throughout history, would build a church, for example, to embody the principles and ethics or or perhaps the spirituality or the divinity of something. So, so religion expressed in architecture. And we have so many examples throughout history of X expressed in architecture or X expressed in this room. And so as people are listening, the reason I'm excited to talk to you about all this is because for you and I it might be normal to think of, well, what's the environment that it's required for this aim? And that's ultimately what we're talking about. What's the environment required for this aim? Well, I don't know. What's the aim? 
it sounds like that form environment research begins with, all right, well, what are the aims? What are the relationships here? And then let's, let's take those aims and reify them. That's a word we used a lot around here, make them real, produce them in reality. So that again, that environment does some of the work for us. I'd be interested in any comments about that, but also I'm curious to know in some of the architecture that you've built, what have been some of the responses to the things that you've attempted to reify to where you've taken ideas and placed them, you know, built them into something real and, and concrete? I'm going to refer to a, a project we completed a couple of years ago in Santa Monica. It's a residence. It's for a couple. Their children are grown and into college at this point. They had had a house in Sherman Oaks up on a hill where they grew up, had a swimming pool, decent-sized yard and everything. And now that the kids were out of the house and everything, they wanted to move over to Santa Monica and somewhere closer to a walkable kind of market and coffee shops and things like that. And so they purchased a property there. They tore down what was a perfectly fine small house on the property. And it came to exactly your question about what's their aim? What did they really want? And so it was interesting because part of the thing that I think we do when we go through a design process is we actually try to pull that question out of our client. Like, what is it that you're really looking for? And it's surprising how difficult that can be. In the end, what we created was a contemporary home, which is something they were well aware they wanted. But the nuances or the environmental structure and organization of that house was something that they were not clear. So we had to listen for cues. And some of these things were that they wanted a two-story residence with so many bedrooms and bathrooms because of resale. They wanted a house full of light. They wanted to never have to go upstairs if it was at all possible because they were felt we're going to grow old in this house and we want to have a master bedroom on the first floor so we never have to go up there if we don't want to. And this can go on and on. And on. There's, there were a ton of these cues, but the driving force here were a number of points here. So what ended up happening is that we developed a house where we had bedrooms on the second floor, but then we took the house and we pulled the house apart down the middle, down a spine. And so we created a two-story street, if you will, that became the circulation for both upstairs and on the first floor. And it was visibly and physically open. So you could be upstairs on the corridor and look down to the corridor below. And so what this did was it said, because there is a master on the first floor, you don't have to go upstairs, but you will experience the entire house without having to go there. And it also allows when somebody's at home, one of the kids are home and they're upstairs, you can engage somebody from two floors. And this was kind of my growing up as a kid and everybody's upstairs yelling, mom, because you need your shoes or something. <laughs> it was yes. maybe a partial response to that of my youth. So we, we split the house in two in that way, created this double height space, a master on the first floor. And then what we also did is down that spine, we created a linear skylight that tracks the sun throughout the entire day. So that spine becomes a two-story piece that pulls the house apart, allows for the integration of the second floor, which they never want to have to go to. And it also becomes a natural daylight piece for the entire 
day as the sun moves across the sky from east to west and it lights the house differently all through the day. So it was the house became the environmental or organizational aspect of the house was a, of a particular solution derived directly from what we learned in trying to understand their aims. And they love the house. They absolutely love it. Well, that leads me to, I'd like for you to brag a little bit about yourself because I know that your firm has won some awards, received some recognition. There may be some things you'd like to say to brag a bit about yourself. So anything that we should know about what you guys have accomplished or anything about who you are? I think one of the unique things about FER Studio is a lot of architects, I think, they specialize in building types. And that's understandable. It's a logical way to address things and become specialized. But we've taken a different approach. So what we do is we specialize in a client who's looking for something unique, a client who really wants to make something that is out of the ordinary and is really particular to their lifestyle, where they want to go in life, what they're looking to do and what they're looking to achieve. And so we will do a variety of projects from museums to single family residences to multifamily residences, creative office spaces, or recently working on a cannabis store. Any type of project is open to us as long as the client themselves is looking for a very, very specialized solution. And I think that's where we really can bring a lot to the table. That's fantastic. I was looking up some information on you and I saw an article titled Spaceman. Uh, by the way, I, <laughs> I loved this title so much. I thought... God, that's so great. I got to rip that off. And that's such a, because it's such a beautiful way of saying that you're a guy concerned for environment. But I've read a few different articles about you and about what you guys have accomplished. Anything else you'd like to say that you're really proud of? The last thing I'd like to say, I think that's really important, is that what Influence Ecology has brought to the table for FER Studio is we're reinventing what FER Studio is using the 13 steps, using the pattern of inquiry, using the transaction cycle. And we're trying to completely restructure how we do, how we operate and how we address situations. And it's interesting for me because when I first came the idea of creating FER Studio and doing these things, I was always looking for that. And I never had a clear path as to how to do it. It's really finally coming together that realization is how to make that work. And I would say to everybody who's studying with Influence Ecology is you really have to be patient. I know John, you and Kirkland constantly say this. You have to be really patient about going through these steps and these pieces. They look awkward. They work funny sometimes. It doesn't seem to be working. But if you keep plugging at it and keep plugging at it, it really starts to come together. And it's really been doing that for us. And I really appreciate that. Well, I hope you had fun today. I certainly did. I enjoyed talking about that subject. As you can tell, I love that subject as much as, as you. I think you might like that subject a little bit more than me, but it's hard to tell. I might have to arm wrestle you for it. I, I might go after that Spaceman title myself. It's a fantastic one. <laughs> you're, you're, I'm welcome well, to share the Spaceman. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris Mercier of FER Studios, thank you for being with us today. It was a pleasure doing this interview with you, and I look forward to letting the world know a little bit more about your talents and your studio. Well, thank you, John. This is really great, and I appreciate everything Influence College has done, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. 
We offer a segment of our Fundamentals of Transaction program here to give an example of what it might look like to begin to build and expand your influence ecology. This bit includes myself and Vice President Drew Knowles in Auckland, New Zealand. But I'm going to sum it up this way by saying money is the value of your help. It's the value of your help. It's it's how your help is seen as value to others in the marketplace. That's why we work so much on your being valuable or low cost. Both of those things are ways in which you can increase your value or the value of your help. And your career is the identity. In other words, the way that people are related to your value or help in those specific ecologies. So you build and expand the help, the others that you require to fulfill your aims in each condition of life. You get help by offering help. You get help by offering help. So when we began this entire session with concentration and focus, one of the reasons I'm committed that you began to concentrate, concentrate your offer, focus your offer, make it quite clear that you want to expand the identity of the value and help that you are to others in the ecologies where your help is seen as useful. So you must build an identity of value or help to attract the invitations offers and requests from powerful centers of influence in specific ecologies there's something important for you to understand about your knownness in ecologies because you are already known perhaps unknown but you're known as unknown i don't know that guy i can see him there but i don't know him So there's a kind of knownness of value or help ranging from unknown to celebrated in different ecologies. And we want to just caution you, don't assume that your smartness, that that you're liked, that you're productive is sufficient to meet your aims because you may be naive to the actions required to produce an identity of value or help. For example, do you only take or do you offer help? Go ahead, Drew. Yeah, one of the things, John, I've been seeing and learning for myself is it's not just help. Someone the other day was saying to me, oh, I I offer my help often, and sometimes it reciprocates. I said, well, you could take that up one level. How about you think about what specific help you can offer? And two examples, John, one is the editor of this magazine. I found out earlier on, and I'm writing for them regularly now, found out early on, he isn't as networked as I am. And I thought he must have access to everybody, but it happens that there are certain networks he doesn't have access to. And he needs quality writers, quality speakers, all sorts. So I have deliberately, and it's partly because of the other people that I know want to get a chance to write and deliver, I've offered him a number of people recently where now they're going to be speaking at certain events and writing certain things and and he's calling me regularly. He rang me the other day. I told you, John, said, you're doing this keynote for us. How can I have the day event be a really good lead generation for influence ecology and help you grow your business? And I was like, go on. And that's <laughs> the kind of thing that's happening, right? And then yeah. this new office space that I've got, the, the woman who manages it, it's a kind of co-working, 
I found out early on, and this is the key point, everybody, is I found out her aims. What has her win in her job? And it so happens that people through the door of this beautiful office space that looks over the water in Auckland is one of her KPIs. So now we're working together and we're going to put on, I'm going to put on a partnered meetup event and I'm basically going to bring a bunch of people through the door, which is what I want to do anyway. And she couldn't be more sort of like supportive and helpful in making sure my office experience and they're going to open up to their members. And we're in this incredibly lovely reciprocal relationship. Really, I just found out what are her main aims and thought to myself, can I or is there someone else that I know offer that specific help to help this person? Because then they are really going to help me. And I could go on and on, but it's about specific help, not just saying, how can I help you? That's costly. That means it's on them to think about how you can help them. That's not an ambitious adult. That's an adult. Anyway, that's the last thing I'll say. Good. I'm going to do a quick thing to the work. I'm going to help the producers or the more objective-minded in what does it mean or look like to build and expand your influence ecology? So I'm going to start right here with this. I'm going to tell you my story. So first of all, I want to build and expand my influence ecology and cooperation in a very specific ecology. So I live in Ventura, California. I moved to this area a decade ago. I live in Ojai, California, which is up the valley a bit. But I work in Ventura, California, and I have not been known publicly here. I have always not wanted to be known publicly here, but I began to change my mind and look at how I might be known, not just as, oh, that guy, but being known for a very specific offer of help. So all I did first is I looked at this list and I asked, all right, well, in what ecology, what specific ecology might I want to impact? I thought, you know what? I'm going to start with the Ventura Chamber of Commerce. The Ventura Chamber of Commerce is quite celebrated in this part of California for a bunch of stuff. They're a rather unusual and kind of amazing group of people. So I thought, nobody knows me. So I'm unknown, top of the list, unknown, no identity of value, help or harm. How might I become somewhat known or known? The Chamber of Commerce president, and the chairman of the chamber, I email them and I send them an email that says, hey, I was involved in Austin, Texas back in sort of the beginnings of what's now South by Southwest, if you know that large global conference. And I was also involved quite substantially in attempting to attract the Olympics to Chicago in the Chicago tech industry. I'd like to help produce some kind of global identity for Ventura. Can we talk? 30 seconds later, I get an email back. I'm not kidding. 30 seconds later, I get an email back inviting me to a lunch the very next day. That lunch led to a meeting with a committee head who happened to be one of the people accountable for LinkedIn Learning. So LinkedIn Learning is a campus nearby us. They invited me to now spearhead this particular group. And now I am one of the co-hosts for the 2019 Economic Outlook Breakfast for Ventura in front of 300 people, all the local politicians and VIPs. 
And we are pointing to a big future for the city of Ventura that my committee is ecstatic about. I am now quite known in that group, but I'm about to be not just somewhat known, but very known and perhaps well-known in the city of Ventura for a very specific kind of help. By the way, I didn't ask to lead any of these things. I didn't ask to head up this committee. I simply demonstrated my help. And as I demonstrated my help, I was invited to participate. Now, knowing I was doing an experiment in career <laughs> in building my influence ecology, I was very picky about what I said yes to. And I said yes to a few things. And I'm about to be quite known in this area for something that matters to me very dearly. My special thanks to our guest, Christopher Mercier. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with him and all the links to websites, books, or downloads mentioned in this podcast. The Influence Ecology Podcast is produced by Influence Ecology LLC in Ventura, California. This episode was recorded May 1st of 2019 and was produced by Tyson Crandall and me, John Patterson. You can find a transcript for this and other episodes at InfluenceEcology.com. This episode is made possible through the assistance of the Influence Ecology faculty, staff, mentors, and students around the world. Co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and our colleagues comprise an international collective of professionals who are active in the development of the philosophy of transactionalism and the discipline of transactional competence. Kirkland is considered a leading philosopher and authority in the field and has authored more than 500 papers on the subject, study, and discipline. The podcast theme is by Chris Standring and titled Fast Train to Everywhere. You can subscribe to the Influence Ecology podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at influenceecology.com. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes or your podcast app, and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know. Yeah.